Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In this extraordinary documentary, When Lambs Become Lions, we are immersed in the Kenyan bush and as a small-time ivory dealer fights to stay on top while forces mobilize to destroy his trade. The plummeting elephant population in Africa has captured the attention of the world as the government cracks down. Both poachers and rangers face their own existential crisis. What is the value of an elephant's life relative to human life? And that is the... uh, somewhat of the broad outline of this terrific documentary called When Lambs Become Lions. We're joined today by the director, John Casby. John, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you for having me on the show, Michael. Thank you for being here. This is uh, an extraordinary documentary and one in which it, uh, I think, among its many assets is your ability to have gained this amazing level of uh, intimacy and confidence of all sides of this particular issue that's happening in front of us as we watch the elephant population plummet all over the world, but certainly here in Kenya. How did this come about? How were you able to endear yourself or find a place where you could be literally in all places at once? Yeah, that's a good question. It really came down to time. You know, this was a project that started from a place of uh, relationship first. Um, it, it didn't start out like being about the film. Um, and I can back up a little bit, and that'll make a little more sense. I'd done three other projects in Kenya before this, so I had quite a few friends there, and it was through them that I got connected to X. And uh, when I approached X, it was a really simple idea. It was just, I want to hear from you, from your perspective, how you feel about everything that's going on. And, and, um, and try to understand you know, the choices you're making uh, from your point of view, um, which was something I hadn't seen done before. It was something I hadn't seen in any other movie or article um, around this issue, which at the time felt really oversaturated to me. I feel like there were so many things coming out around poetry and conservation, but never had I seen something from the perspective of the local hunters. And when I started talking with X about that, he really responded. Like I think he felt that lack of perspective as well and felt deeply misunderstood by the way that the world and the media portrayed him. Um, so up front, that's kind of, that was kind of the in into his world. That's one short conversation, and that can only last so long. You know, this film was shot over the course of three and a half years. So to kind of keep it going, it really became about the relationship um, and spending a lot of time without a camera, um, just living with these guys, listening, uh, you know, going on long walks, uh, eating together, cooking, um, teaching English lessons, all kinds of things to kind of put, uh, the relationship person showed that this wasn't just about documenting what was going on, but it was really about me also on like a, a personal level understanding and kind of becoming a, as much a part of their lives as I could. Um, and you'll see, you know, there's a lot of very intimate moments filmed. And one question that comes up a lot is like, how were you able to be there for that moment? And I think one thing that audiences sometimes don't understand is that, you know, you're seeing these moments that we filmed, but before each of these moments that have been filmed, most of these things happened three or four times before then. So when you see Hassan and his wife in this big fight that, that I'm filming, um, I've already witnessed three of them, three fights between them uh, where I didn't have a camera or where I had a camera and chose not to shoot it. Um, so by the time that the final, sh- the final version of it that is in the film happens, they're so used to me being there 
that it's no longer a special um, event. It's just a normal thing, and they're used to me kind of being there for those things. So it doesn't feel so much like I'm, you know, suddenly pulling out a camera to capture this this unique um, situation. It's something that happens all the time, um, and that they're used to me being around for. So it was, it was kind of an investment of time in letting the, the friendship and the relationship be the foundation that the project was then built upon. Okay, so you you met X be, through your earlier films or some connection to your earlier films. Yeah. When did yeah. you realize he had a cousin who was on literally the other side of this that. issue? He didn't tell me that for eight months. And I think that speaks to the situation. And it, it wasn't like, so I should say, my first meeting with X, I kind of went into it, you know, a little bit nervous and unsure what he'd be like and expecting him to be a little bit secretive or maybe opaque, but it, it wasn't that at all. He was very forthright. He was very direct. He was very honest. He was making me laugh. I was, I was being charmed by him. I found myself leaving the interaction, wanting to spend more time with him, which was the last thing I was expecting to happen. Um, and then, you know, we kind of formed this friendship and we're hanging out a lot. We're spending a lot of time together and eight months go by. And then it, then he reveals to me that he has a cousin who's a lot stranger. At the time I was almost upset. I was like, you have a cousin that's a ranger and you didn't tell me this? And it was this kind of look in his eyes that was like, well, of course, it, like, it was almost like this is a non-event. Like, this is not unusual. Like, we all know each other. And, like, family ties between the two sides is very common. And what it took a long time for me to slowly realize is that these sides aren't separate. Um, this is a community of people that are in a situation where they don't feel like there's a structure that allows them to kind of pick anything other than these two sides. And just because you're on one doesn't mean you necessarily believe in what you're doing. Um, right. And I think that there's something to, to believe. There's, a, there's almost privilege in that. Because um, when you're waking up thinking about how you're going to feed your kids, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of steps that you have to achieve before you can start thinking about, you know, are the choices I'm making choices I agree with ethically? Right. Um, and I don't think either side felt like they were making choices they agreed with ethically. But they weren't at points to really wrestle with that yet. They were still focused on, like, how do I feed my kids and keep my family alive? Well, they're coming from this situation where they're literally, and disabuse me of this notion if it's if I'm not right. There's literally bereft of any opportunity beyond sort of their connection to the bush, the land around them where these endangered animals' habitat are. So it's understandable that they would be on one side or the other in this, and the fact that they're. Yeah, there's no there's no place to go. There's no there's not I didn't couldn't discern any other industry in in this part of Kenya to speak of. Um, help me help me understand that. What about the part of Kenya that we're talking about? What opportunities were there ex- beyond that? Yeah, I mean there were like a, a boda boda drivers, which are you know men that like have motorcycles and give people a ride, and they make you know one to two dollars a day. It's it's really, really difficult, um, and very few opportunities like that, at least from the perspective of the guys I'd spend time with, they, they'd kind of complain quite a bit, saying that those opportunities don't really give you what you would need to support a family um, yeah. in, a, in a real way. Um, and so everyone is kind of, you know, doing a bunch of different jobs. But the main two that I kept observing were, were people either going out and hunting or protecting. Um, and... You know, to put it into perspective financially, like these rangers are getting paid $100 a month, and that's when they do get paid. Oftentimes, payments are delayed or don't come through at all, which is really, really frustrating for them. Whereas for the poachers, they're getting about $2,000 for each elephant that they take down. 
And so when you kind of like look at that math, it, 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 it quickly starts making sense from a financial perspective why um, why some of these guys are choosing to hunt rather than to protect. Yeah. Um, also, you know, like the rangers are out there. I think it's I want to say twenty eight days out of the month they're oh. expected to be out there. Oh my um, Whereas poachers in a lot of ways are sort of like freelancers. It's like when they get a tip, when they hear about an old elephant in a certain area, when they have information, they go, and when they don't, you know, they kind of like sit back and they can try to find other work or take on other jobs. Um, and also the other part, we were speaking of the rangers, there that uh, meeting that we see near the beginning of the film where they're talking about how they haven't been paid for several weeks, I think a couple months even, and, they, uh, and the guy at the end of the day, the man running the meeting just basically says, well, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave. And everybody, yeah. almost without exception, everyone puts their heads down and just, you know, just from that point forward. Because ultimately, they, that's the ace card, isn't it? They can just, right. you know, find something else. Well, they know if they leave, they're going to poach. You know, for some of them, it's like their wives don't want them to do that anymore. For some of them, they've had so many friends get killed through that process, they're scared to do it. Some of them, it's like they feel like other poachers won't trust them anymore now that they've become a ranger. Um, there's all kind of reasons why why these guys feel like they can't kind of get back into that once they've left. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely this feeling of like a huge lack of opportunity and and very little choice in the matter. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with John Casby. He's the director of this remarkable documentary called When Lambs Become Lions. It's opening here in Los Angeles at the Santa Monica Film Center or Monica Film Center, more correctly, uh, this Friday, November 22nd. Are you in town for any Q&As for this? Yes, I will. I'll be, on the, I'll be at the Q&A at the 7.30 p.m. showtime on, on uh, the 22nd and the 23rd, and then on the 24th, I'll be at the 1 p.m. showtime. Fantastic. Check it out, people. Uh, first of all, the Monica Film Center is cool. Uh, it's right there. You're a couple of blocks from the beach. It's uh, and it's a great theater complex, and just a lot going on in that area. And no better way to see a film than to see it with see a great film, than to see it with the person or people responsible for making it and having an opportunity to talk with them about it. You, you can't get any better than that. And uh, I, and I again, we're going to go back to what you said at the beginning of our interview, which I completely agree with. You know, this is from the side of the whole poaching issue that we rarely if ever have any real idea other than they're really bad people for killing elephants which everyone loves and understands how intelligent and family-centric these these mammals are and how amazing they are and how they're disappearing off the face of the earth because of this insane obsession with their tusks and all that kind of stuff. So you, it's easy to completely vilify these people. I'm not condoning what they're doing, but I, it's easy to vilify them for reasons that we rarely, if ever, understand why someone would be moved to do this. And um, mm. so thank you for bringing that perspective to it. Well, uh, um, appreciate it. Yeah. Now, uh, let's talk about, again, I've sort of, I'm, I'm obsessed with how, how, this this feeling within the film of just seeing everything in real time that really mm. has this impact. It's such a tremendous impact. You talked about your relationship over a period of time. But also it's the look of the film, the way you shot it as well. It's it's a combination of this sense that we know these people, we know what they're going through because we've gotten to know them. But how I mean, your camera work here is just phenomenal. Do we want to, let's talk about some of the people yourself as well as some of the other um, uh, shooters that you had had working on this film because it just looks crazy good. 
Thanks, yeah. Um, I mean, when I first met X, when we first started kind of talking about doing this project together, one of the first things I told him was like, you know, this this is, I want to kind of be with you and create an experience that puts audiences in your shoes and lets people feel and go through the choices you're making. You know, I'm not so much interested in talking about the past or thinking about the future. I want to be very present-oriented. And whether the, he, I don't think, you know... <laughs> When someone approaches you to make a film and you're talking about it, I don't think it really clicks in until you kind of start doing it. And they, they quickly start to realize, like, John wants to see everything. He wants to be a part of everything. He's going to join us for all the things we do, which helps because then eventually they kind of, like, stopped thinking about it and it became less of a, a new thing and more of just a texture in their lives. Um, but that was really important to me. You know, with, with documentary, like, I, I love experiences that are just all-consuming and where you get lost in the story. And I felt like there had already been a lot of pieces um, that were a little bit more interview driven and a little bit more um, information and context based um, on the situation. I didn't feel like that was something we needed, but I really, what I was much more interested in is creating an experience where people kind of get lost in these guys' lives. Yeah. Um, and so that affected everything from the way that we, you know, picked the guys in the movie to the way we shot it, to the way we edited it. In terms of shooting, you know, these are really, really long takes. So I kind of like start the day and hit record and rarely cut. Um, I kind of just keep it going. And it's, it's kind of, a process of trying to predict the future. You're guessing a lot of the times, so but you're also identifying patterns in people's behavior mm. um, and knowing what kinds of things um, certain characters attract. Some some people attract chaos and like things just keep happening to them. Other people kind of like push chaos away and like hold on to order in their lives. And, and um, once you start picking up on those, you can kind of start to guess what's going to happen next and sort of um, prepare for it with the camera so you can kind of capture those moments as they unfold. And then editorially, you know, we were looking a lot of references that resembled our characters. We didn't actually look to many documentaries. We were mostly looking at fiction films. Um, I think we felt like both X and Asan were these really complicated, complex people that on the surface were doing things we didn't always agree with, but were still people we cared about deeply and we wanted to be along for the ride to see all the choices they made and understand the ripple effects of those choices. And so we looked to films like Heat and we looked to the mm -hmm. series Breaking Bad. Like those were kind of our structural references when it came, came to the edit. And you know, this was shot over the course of three and a half years. I had 700 hours of footage. Um, and so it was just this like this overwhelming mountain of an experience. And then I brought on these two uh, really smart editors to kind of work through it all with me. And together we, you know, kind of found the story that most closely resembled what the experience was like in the field. That was what we were most in it, you know, because when you have so much footage, it's very easy to get lost and get overwhelmed and to get discouraged. But we'd always kind of go back to like, well, is this what it actually felt like in the field? Like, is this what the experience was like when we were there? And then in the field, you know, the, the access was very limited. So there wasn't a lot of opportunities to bring uh, like a real team. A, a lot of the time it was just me and, and sometimes a fixer. But there were a lot of instances where there were multiple things happening at the same time in different places. And after the first two years of shooting, it became clear to me that I was missing a lot of things on the other side because there was only one of me and one camera. Um, and so I started bringing in an additional cinematographer at times. So there was a local shooter in Kenya, his name was Alex Pritz, um, who's been living in Nairobi for a while. He joined the project and he'd come up. And so whenever I'd go on a hunt, he'd kind of go off with the rangers and see them kind of react. Or when, um, like another good example is when Zara, Assam's wife, goes into labor. We knew we wanted to have a camera with Hassan and a camera with X, and kind of going back and forth between between X and, and Zara, because we knew that when that happened, uh, we'd seen the pattern enough times that whenever Hassan was in trouble, he'd call an X, and you know we knew he's going to be out in the ranger, you know, because he's out there like 28 days out of the month. Like chances are that's where he'll be when she goes into labor, and he doesn't have a car, he doesn't have money. Like who's he going to rely on? It's like he's going to have to call his cousin. We kind of knew that was going to happen. 
um, or had a good a good sense that would happen. And so we kind of prepared for those things. And again, it goes back to trying to predict the future um, and thinking, you know, critically and just staying very aware. So yeah, and then we also there was another shooter as well, David Boland, who's an incredible, um, very cinematic guy who uh, who would come up as well um, at yeah. times and, and shoot with us. So. At one point, we're on both sides of the hunt. I feel funny about asking this question. I'm not trying to put you on some sort of moral question here, yeah. but it, yeah, but yeah, yeah. when you're watching them, get prepared to fire an arrow at, at an elephant. I mean, mm-hmm. what's going through your? How do you? I know it's about getting this. This is going to happen whether you're there or not. I guess, right? right. I mean, that's that's sort of the where you where you, as a as a uh, someone documenting this. But it's tough to watch because you know what's going to happen. I mean, you have a sense of the the hopeful outcome. And but wow, what what what's going through your mind? I mean, how are you? Yeah, how are you processing? That's a, great, that's a really. I think it's an important question. Um, and as you just said, I think remembering this is going to happen whether you're there or not is really key. Um, and knowing where your place is, you know, when it's time for you to step in, when it's not. And it, it, honestly, those hunts are some of the hardest things to be a part of and to not do anything. But I will say that the first, I went on 10 hunts total. The first three hunts I went on, I went without a camera. Um, and I realized something during those experiences, which is that when you're filming something, the camera can sometimes act as a separation between you and reality. It kind of gives you this heightened sense of purpose in that you're saving this moment for other people to see. And so you can, in a way, almost detach from something that's happening that is negative or troubling. But on those first three hunts, I was still in the process of kind of gaining their trust and getting their access and proving to them that I was someone who could, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically keep up and was willing to put myself in the same situations that they were living in in a daily way. And so to go on those hunts the first three times and not have a camera and to just fully observe was by far the most complicated troubling experience I've ever been in as a filmmaker to the point where afterwards I like actually had to step away and take time off the project and, and get space because I was losing my love for them. I was having a really hard time kind of accepting the choices they were making while also staying open to who they were and staying on this track of I'm, I'm here to understand. You know, I'm not here to justify and I'm not here to judge, but I'm here to understand. Um, and out of that understanding, hopefully there's a, a greater meaning and we can kind of fill a gap in the conversation and have a fuller conversation about what's going on and why, because Right now in Kenya, like these rangers, they're just killing poachers. They see someone, they see anyone near an elephant with weapons and they just get shot on sight. And it used to be that if you got caught and you weren't killed, which was very unusual, if that happened, you would go to jail for life. And Kenya recently passed the death penalty. So now if you get caught, you either get killed there or you get killed by the government later. The death is the only option. And I just don't know that that's the right way to be handling this, especially when it's a situation where, you know, the people protecting and the people hunting are family. And they don't see separation. These, they don't see themselves as two separate sides. They see themselves as one community stuck in a situation that's really screwed up. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, thank you for that, because that is uh, completely, um, you know, while it's, it's hard to watch, um, and, and just, what the, just the things that you said, to be able to, as a filmmaker, because it's really important that we understand this. And we also, it's important for us to understand why X is, you know, uh, you know, he's talking to is it Kasim? Who's the uh, on the other on the phone? Um, he's talking with the person who's asked him to do this. Oh yeah, he's talking to a buyer. Yeah, um, the, the buyer was actually a character in the film. Uh, but one deal we made with everyone was that you know, if anyone wanted to be taken out of the film, it could be, and the buyer was one of the people. Yeah. But at the end, it was like I, I don't want to be in this anymore. So right. Kind of cut him out of it. Okay. Well, we we need to see it all. That's the purpose of When Lambs Becomes Lions, is for us to understand this. And uh, boy, do you. 
I have a question about working with uh, Matthew, Matthew Heinemann. Um, mm. Tell me a little bit about where he came into the project because he, through Cartel Land, I had him on the program for Cartel Land. Uh, wow, mm. what an amazing <laughs> adventure that was. <laughs> Obviously, someone used to the perils of shooting in very hostile territory, potentially hostile territory. When did Matthew come in the, into the project for When Lions, Lambs Become Lions? Matthew came on pretty early. Um, I had I had just done like the first shoot, and I'd come back to New York, and I was kind of sharing this link with a bunch of people, trying to find support, um, trying to find funding. And I remember we sent it to Catherine Bigelow, and then she sent it to Matthew, and then Matthew called and just said, you know, I'm uh, very excited about what you're doing. Let me know how I can support. And I was like, well, I'd love for you to you know, be a part of the team and join us. And so he came on as an executive producer, and it was a very helpful um, kind of sounding board and just uh, someone who could give a very honest perspective on uh, a lot of the issues I was running into in the field and a lot of these ethical dilemmas and um, yeah. dealing with characters that are doing things that you don't necessarily agree with that are on both sides of an issue. Like these are all things that he dealt with personally on cartel land um, and kind of had a very unique experience on. And, and so, you know, having his mind and having, being able to call him and, and get his advice in situations like that was, was so, so valuable. And then in the edit too, you know, he came in and he watched cuts um, and as we've been releasing it, he's been helpful as well. I'm kind of like spreading the word. So yeah, he's he's been great. Well, it, it really shows in the film. I, I just the, the all of the things, all the rawness, the authenticity, this amazing access, understanding the issue, understanding no matter how we we may be horrified at the idea that elephants are dying for their tusks, and all of these things all come into play here. It's in in it's just a remarkable documentary. I'm, my Sincere congratulations to you on this film. It is it is terrific. Really, really well Thank done. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, very welcome. The film, again, is When Lambs Become Lions, and the, the film is coming out here in Los Angeles today, Friday, November 22nd, at the Monica Film Center. John will be there Friday night, Saturday night, and then on Sunday afternoon at the 1 p.m. screening. So I assume the Saturday, Friday and Saturday are around 7, 7.30. What time is the screening? It says it's Yeah, 7.30. 7.30 screening. So check this out. It's well worth uh, your, your time and, and to get to the Monica Film Center. And I look forward. Please continue to do the work you're doing here uh, in some other way uh whether you and i'm gonna just say this i don't know if anyone said this before but definitely have a career path in um narrative filmmaking <laughs> okay oh, thank you. <laughs> yes you do john casby thank you so very much for being here on film school radio thank you thanks for having me You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.